Information. Incoming transmission from the surface of Pyrovilia Alpha. You'd think Blake would get the message from the Liberator leaving orbit. State your request more clearly. Ignore message, Zen. Confirmed. And ignore all future messages from the surface of that planet. Confirmed. I have what I want right here. And Blake and his merry band of do-gooders can rot on the surface of that planet for all I care. Information. Incoming transmission. Source unknown. Orak? The source of the transmission appears to be a Federation pursuit ship with highly advanced cloaking and navigational functions matching our course at 100 spatials. Information. Unauthorized teleport in operation. Serverlan. I should have guessed it was you. Yes, and you've exceeded my expectations wonderfully. I can't believe your friends trusted you. And I can't believe you finally managed to fool me. Don't flatter yourself. Once the rumors about Dr. Rattenbury's new computer were circulated, I knew you'd come sooner or later. It was just a matter of time. You realize, of course, what will happen if I activate it? Of course. In fact, I'm counting on you doing it. Well, I'm not a man to disappoint. Orak, activate Jodcast Computer. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the Jodcast on August the 1st. Here we are at the partial solar eclipse and I'm joined by Roy. Hi Roy. Hi Stuart. Um, Nice to have you back on the Jodcast. Excellent, I'm very happy to be here. Coming up on the show this time we talk about the sun with it being the eclipse. We have the night sky with Ian Morrison. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Dust clouds seen forming around a nova in Scorpio. New ways to weigh a black hole and further links between supernovae and gamma-ray bursts. Novae, stars which brighten suddenly before fading slowly away, are fairly common. They are often discovered by automated search telescopes or by dedicated amateur astronomers. One such nova was V1280 Scorpi, which was discovered by Japanese amateur astronomers on the 4th of February 2007. After the initial discovery, the brightness of the nova slowly rose to a visual maximum on the 17th of February, 12 days after the initial discovery, and unusually slow for a nova. It is known that these events produce large quantities of dust in a shell around the erupting star, but the actual production of this dust is difficult to detect. In the case of V1280 Scorpi, a team of astronomers using the Very Large Telescope Interferometer, or VLTI, have observed the formation of the dust shell in the infrared at very high resolution, and been able to watch its evolution over 100 days. The VLTI consists of four unit telescopes, each one 8.2 metres in diameter, plus four movable 1.8 metre auxiliary telescopes. These telescopes can be used individually, or linked together in groups of two or three, to create an optical interferometer having a much higher resolution than any current individual optical telescope. 
Using the unique capabilities of these telescopes, astronomers have measured the formation and expansion of a dust shell around a nova for the first time. Using the technique of interferometry, the group made observations with a resolution equivalent to that of a telescope between 35 and 71 metres in diameter, allowing them to resolve the expanding dust shell and measure its rate of expansion, the first time such measurements had been made for a nova. The first observations, taken just 23 days after the initial discovery, showed a very compact object less than one thousandth of an arc second or one milliarc second across. A few days later, after the detection of the major dust formation event, the source had increased in size and now measured 13 milliarc seconds across. The results were published in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics during July, and the authors explained that the later size corresponds to the diameter of the dust shell in expansion, while the size previously measured was an upper limit on the size of the erupting source. Further observations over the next few months showed that the shell was expanding at close to 2 million kilometres per hour. Using measurements of the angular expansion rate and knowledge of the expansion velocity, the group estimates that the NOVA is about 5,500 light-years away. The data from the VLCI also shows that the event ejected an amount of material with an estimated mass of more than 33 times that of the Earth. There is now large amounts of evidence that most galaxies contain a central supermassive black hole. Sometimes they are quiet and hard to detect, while others are devouring material at a huge rate, and their jets and accretion disks are easily visible in various parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. To measure the mass of these monsters, astronomers usually measure the motions of stars or gas in the inner part of the host galaxy. The faster the stars are moving, the more massive the central black hole. This method has been used in many galaxies, but in order to verify the measured mass, another method is also required. Now a group of astronomers using the Chandra X-ray Observatory have succeeded in making an independent measurement of the mass of the quiescent supermassive black hole in the giant elliptical galaxy NGC 4649, using an effect which they first predicted almost ten years ago. Using Chandra observations, the group investigated the temperature of the hot interstellar medium within this galaxy by measuring the energy of the X-ray emission. The higher the energy of the X-rays, the higher the temperature of the gas. The idea behind this method is that as the gas falls towards the black hole under the influence of its strong gravitational field, it gets compressed and begins to heat up. This causes a peak in the temperature profile across the galaxy, which can be measured using instruments such as those on board Chandra. The stronger the peak in the temperature profile, the more massive the central black hole. These observations, led by Philip Pumphrey at the University of California, show that the temperature increases within the central 2 kiloparsecs of NGC 4649, peaking at an energy of 1.1 kiloelectron volts within the central 200 parsecs. Using these measurements, the group estimates that the black hole has a mass of 3.35 billion solar masses, in good agreement with previous estimates for measuring the motions of stars around the same black hole. Because both of these independent methods result in the same black hole mass, it is strong evidence that the results of stellar kinematics are correct. Last month it was reported that astronomers using the SWIFT satellite to observe the supernova remnant in NGC 2770 have been lucky enough to observe the supernova happening in real time in the same galaxy. Now, another team studying this supernova have found evidence that the event was actually intermediate between a normal supernova and a more energetic gamma-ray burst. The event was discovered in January during observations of a supernova which occurred in NGC 2770 back in 2007. During the observation, a burst of X-rays was detected as a result of another explosion in the same galaxy, an event which was given the name SN2008D. 
This X-ray flash is a short but energetic event which occurs in explosions of the most massive stars. Up to now, the only supernovae to have shown early gamma-ray or X-ray emission have been over-energetic and broad-lined Type 1c supernovae, sometimes called hypernovae. A European team, led by Paolo Mazzali at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, used several telescopes to observe SN 2008d and examine its light. Using optical telescopes, the team quickly determined that this event was a Type 1c core collapse supernova, the result of a massive star collapsing catastrophically at the end of its life. Type 1c events result from stars which have lost their outermost hydrogen and helium layers before they explode, and so far are the only type of supernova associated with gamma-ray bursts. The X-ray emission detected by Swift, however, was very weak and soft, meaning that it contained more lower-energy X-ray photons than higher-energy ones. This type of X-ray emission is more characteristic of normal supernova explosions rather than gamma-ray bursts. Earlier reports of observations of SN 2008d suggested that the X-rays were detected simply because the star was caught in the act of exploding, but Mazzali and his team have another suggestion. After the discovery, they monitored the evolution of the explosion using several telescopes and discovered that the spectrum of the supernova began to change after a few days, with emission from helium starting to appear and the spectrum changing from a Type 1c to a Type 1b. This showed that the progenitor star was not stripped of helium as deeply as supernovae normally associated with gamma-ray bursts. Their models suggest that 2008D's progenitor would have been as massive as 30 times the Sun when it was formed. Stars this massive are capable of forming black holes when they explode. Since the mass and energy involved in this event are lower than for every known gamma-ray burst-related supernovae, but higher than that normally observed in ordinary supernovae, what Mazzali's group suggests is that the collapse of this star was only capable of forming a weak jet. They suggest that the presence of the helium layer made it harder for the jet to remain collimated, resulting in the weak X-ray signal that was detected. Observations of events such as this help further our understanding of the links between supernovae, hypernovae and gamma-ray bursts, and how massive stars come to an end, injecting new chemical elements back into the interstellar medium to be used in further star formation. And finally, following the decision last month to name the solar system's new class of dwarf planets as the Plutoids, the International Astronomical Union has this month approved the name of the third member of this group. Discovered in 2005 by a team led by Mike Brown of the California Institute of Technology, the dwarf planet previously known as 2005 FY9 has been named Make Make after the Polynesian creator of humanity and god of fertility. Its provisional designation, 2005 FY9, has also been replaced by the permanent Minor Planet Center designation 136472. Thank you very much for that, Megan. Okay, and now we have our listener feedback as we stand here with a partial eclipse already underway. So let's start with the iTunes reviews. We've had three iTunes reviews this month from Roger Gray, from someone with a very long and difficult to pronounce name, Mr. Pi 3.14159265, and he goes on, um, on the US iTunes store, and to Lee Calvi23, who asks why we only have seven of our archive podcasts available on the RSS feed, and that's a good point, Lee, and we'll sort that out so that all of the, the archive is on the RSS feed. Now, going to the email, um, we had a couple of people, Andrew Hewson and David Sang, who both asked about a forum, and they volunteered to host one. Now, we're actually thinking about hosting one on our own site, and hopefully we'll have more of that in September. Roy, you've got some more emails? Yep, I have one from Michael Booth. He sent us some wonderful pictures of a star party. 
And he says, we're out Friday night watching the IO Transit Jupiter. And I wonder whether such an event was detectable using radio observations too. I don't know the exact details on this, but I think that the radio emission from Jupiter is actually in a beam originating from the magnetic poles. Even though IO causes this radio emission by volcano eruptions, I don't think you can actually see IO passing through this beam. Therefore, I don't think you will be able to see an IO Transit of Jupiter in radio waves. Well, that's a shame there, but he did send us some nice pictures of him and his friends with their telescopes um, looking at that transit, which are very nice, and we, we welcome all your photographs that you send us. And we have one email from Glynis van Uden. Ah, he's Dutch. Greetings from the Netherlands. I have to say, groetjes terug. Uh, he says, I recently bought an MP3 player so I can listen to the podcast while doing the ironing, which I hate. But now it doesn't seem so bad. It's good to see that we have some use. Yes, please, Dutch people, all tune in to Jotcast. An email from Helder Rodriguez. I bought a telescope on Impulse once at a shopping mall, and apparently it was not a very good one. He says, it's useful to watch the moon, a fuzzy Jupiter, and nearby buildings. So a bit disappointing there, but then I guess people sometimes buy these things just to watch their nearby buildings like neighbors. I can imagine <laughs> that. Well, the moon's pretty spectacular through a small telescope. Indeed, just watching the craters. The craters. Yeah, it's exactly. beautiful. So even though it's a cheap telescope, you can still have some fun with it. We have a very special email from Paul Binkley. Paul wrote us a poem. What's the title, Roy? It's called The Jodrell Rock. And this is after the, the famous poem The Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. I have to say, it did sound rather familiar when I read it. The Jodrell Rock. Twas photons in a Hubble swarm did radiate in microwaves. Keplerian were the binary dwarfs and the Doppler shifts they made. Observe the Jodrell Rock, my son, the dish that sees the waveguide snatch. Beware the Malmquist bias and shun, the spurious software patch. He took a CCD in hand, long time the CMB he thought. So rested he by the hard drive stack, with light curves traced in thought. And as on starry thought he fed, the jodrell rock, with braced frame, slew swiftling through the axis Z, and rumbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through, an oiled steel it made its pivot, upon the sky it cast its eye, in the gleaming of a rivet. And hast thou slewn the jodrell rock, then propagate thou radio wave. O cosmic ray, just a proton, okay? He loved his dish concave. Twas photons in a Hubble swarm did radiate in microwaves. Keplerian were the binary dwarfs and the Doppler shifts they made. Well, that's excellent. So thank you very much, Paul, for sending that in. And if any other of our Judge Guest listeners feel inspired, then please do send us in your poetry and artwork. As I say this, the sun has just come out from behind the cloud. Indeed it did. Quickly get a look through my very safe British Astronomical Association approved viewing glasses. And it's just gone back behind the cloud. But it was very nice briefly there with a a notch chopped out of the sun with the moon in the way. We're joined by Philippa Browning of the University of Manchester's Jodlebank Centre for Astrophysics. Hi, Philippa. Hi. And you're an expert on the sun. As much as... (laughs) You know know a lot more than we do about the (laughs) sun. So... First of all, just quickly remind us all what is uh, an eclipse of the sun. Right, well, an eclipse is when the the moon comes between the the sun and the earth 
and therefore the the the, the moon is is exactly blocking out the light of of the sun which you know doesn't reach some some portion of the earth's surface and obviously that requires the alignment to be exactly right i mean as the moon goes round the sun every month it, it, it would you would think it would be between the sun and the earth but normally it's a bit above or a bit below right. and it just happens that every so often the alignments work out exactly right so the moon blocks out the, the sun's light yeah. and it's also a remarkable coincidence that the apparent size of the moon in the in the sky is exactly the same as the apparent size of the sun so the sun obviously is very much bigger but it's also very much further away it these things cancel each other out almost exactly so that the moon can perfectly block out the disk of the sun it's a remarkable coincidence yeah but there we go so tell us what the current state of knowledge is about the sun what what do we actually know in 2008 Right. Well, in, in some sense, obviously, we we know quite a lot. You know, we understand quite well the internal structure of the sun. The energy is generated in in, in the core by fusion, and it, it works its way out actually very slowly. The, it takes How a long, long time, take? about a hundred thousand years, for the radiation years. to get wow. from the sort of edge of the core to the surface, and that's because the matter is so dense. And basically, the the, the photons are, are they, they they travel a little bit and then they hit an atom and are you know bounced off and go in a different direction. And they basically sort of squeeze their way out and sort of stagger very, through very to slow. the surface eventually. Once they reach what we call the photosphere, which is the visible surface, at that point the photons can then just travel freely and just come you know, all the way from the photosphere to, the, to our eyes, which takes about you know, eight, eight minutes or so. Um, they travel freely through space at that point. So the visible surface is, is the photosphere. But I guess what, where things start to get perhaps more interesting and where, where an eclipse is special is, is an eclipse is the only time from the Earth that we can see the corona, which right. is the outer atmosphere, basically. OK, so this is the bit surrounding the... Yeah, so this is the bit. So, when, um, so as you go above the photosphere, the density goes down a lot. So we have very low density material, but excitingly, very high temperature. So whereas the temperature of the photosphere is only about 6,000 degrees, um, the temperature in the corona is one or two million. So it actually gets hotter. So, yes, it actually gets hotter as you move away from the surface of the sun, which is very surprising and is one of the things we're still trying to explain. And by temperature, what do you mean for... It's not from the radiation from the sun, then. This is just the particles moving very, very quickly. Yeah, this is to do, yeah, actually, the the energy of of the particles. I mean, the corona is still, you know, it's it's, it's less dense, but there's still material there. It's not not a vacuum, and so so it has a temperature. So do we know why it's so much hotter? Not exactly. I mean, the one thing we do know is it's something to do with the magnetic field. I think that's kind of confirmed. Um, So basically what, what seems to be happening is we have energy coming out from the interior of the sun. We build up free energy in the magnetic field. So the magnetic field is like an energy store. I mean, I, I like to think of it like sort of, you know, rubber bands. Magnetic fields act very much like rubber bands. So if you stretch and stretch a rubber band, it's, you're, you're building up energy. Right. And if you stretch a rubber band and then sort of, well, two things can happen. It can either snap, which is obviously a sort of release of energy, or it can just, you know, you just let go and it kind of flies off. <laughs> so right. in either way, if you imagine sort of stretching a rubber band and sort of letting it go, um, that's like what we think is happening in the corona. You're, you're building right. energy and then, you and know, then sort of letting it go, it. suddenly yeah. releasing. It. And is this um, what the causes the solar flares? Yeah, where well, it seems, well, there's, there's very, I say, coronal heating is by no means, it's still a subject of controversy. Right. So, one idea, um, which is kind of what I work on, is the idea that coronal heating is the same mechanism as solar flares. Right. So, in a solar flare, you do 
doing it on a large scale and for coronal heating the same thing is going on on sort of a smaller scale but all the time so lots of little mini solar flares basically but that is only one theory and other people have other theories and there's another theory for example is it's to do with waves but again magnetic waves so you have waves in the magnetic field and these are kind of propagating up through the magnetic field and waves carry energy so there's lots of competing theories and it's all still very much um you know watch this there's yeah lots lots to play for and that's why eclipses are interesting i say going back to eclipses because in an eclipse that's when you can is the only time when you can actually see the corona from earth and there is science to be done because from space it's you can't see the low corona the bit near the near the surface of the sun oh okay because you have to block out uh, yeah you block out you you can see the corona from space by blocking out the sun right but you can only you have to block out a bit more okay so you tend to only see the sort of high corona um, oh, so the eclipses are still used. So eclipses for, are still used, and there's also you can you can get higher sort of time resolution. You can get you know see things. You're not trying to transmit data from space, right. and so you can get high time resolution measurements. For example, if you want to see these waves that mm. you know people think may heat the corona, then eclipses are a good time to do that. Oh. So they are they do have you know some scientific importance. Although, as I having said that, a lot of the science we do from space, from you know space telescopes, um, have satellites and so on. So, yeah. okay, well, thank you very much. That's exciting stuff, and I'm glad to know that eclipses still are useful for scientific purposes. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, thanks for talking to us. So sadly, the sun has gone beyond the clouds, which is typical in this country, I have to say. <laughs> Luckily, we have our engineer, Dave Glynn, with us, and he has a wonderful setup. Dave, what is all this? Well, we've just set up uh, an old satellite dish and uh, bits of equipment we've got around the lab, and uh, we're just tracking the sun with uh, radio waves as a, an alternative when the, the clouds cover. So I see a big indicator here that says from 0 to 100%, and it's at 95%. What does that mean? Uh, well, we've just calibrated this needle to uh, give 100% when we're on the sun. So if we don't move the dish, you, you see the sun slowly move out the beam. So even though the clouds are in the way, we can still see all the emission that's coming from the sun in radio. Yeah, it's a bit of fun. Thank you very much. OK, we're joined by Professor Mark Edmonds of the Department of Archaeology at the University of York. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hi. Now, you've been giving a talk this morning. Tell us what you've been talking about. Well, I think a lot of people came here to watch the partial eclipse and were surprised to find an archaeologist uh, talking to them. Uh, but I was here to talk about the evidence that there is for the interest that people in the past have shown in the sun and the moon and the stars. So looking at sort of prehistoric architecture, art, artefacts, all of which tell us quite a lot about people's attitudes towards the heavens. So the most famous one must be Stonehenge, I guess. It's the one that people always come back to because it, it just has this sort of very iconic uh, quality to it. But in fact, there's evidence all over the place for people's attitudes towards, uh, towards the sky. Tell us about some of the, the things you've been looking at recently then. Okay. Um, well, some of the things I was talking about this morning are, are monuments from about 6,000 years ago, maybe 350 generations uh, in, t- in human terms, uh, from what we call the Neolithic. Right. Uh, monuments that have architectural arrangements, the positioning of stones or other features, which, tr- which catch certain astronomical alignments. So it might be that the monuments are arranged so that the sun travels through them at the mi- uh, on a particular line uh, at the midwinter solstice or the summer solstice. Um, Stonehenge obviously is, is known for that, but many other monuments have, have similar kinds of arrangements. And there are there's some examples of this up in the, the north of Scotland, I think? Uh, all over the place, but in um, the Western Isles, certainly, and in Orkney, is probably some of the most spectacular ones. Uh, an ama- amazing so-called passage grave uh, called Maze Howe. 
uh, and the sun shines down in midwinter into the central chamber where the bodies of the dead would have been at that time and that time alone. In so the why, year. why would they have picked that particular time of year? Um, well, I think it's, it's not that people are trying to you know, create a calendar. It's more that they're trying to make sense of their own lives cycles of life and death in relation to cycles in the heavens as well so uh, in a world where the land dies back and is born again in the spring uh, those kinds of events solstice events would be potentially of great symbolic importance and if you can tie that to people's attitudes towards the dead and perhaps even an afterlife then again it might have an extra resonance yeah i mean we know about many cultures around the world who who make patterns in the stars to to help describe the the seasons of the year and not to plant their crops and things Mm -hmm. But maybe just to describe describe it, but also to seek help. Um, You might actually be calling on the spirits or the gods that you recognise in the stars to help you and to ensure that the crops will grow, that the land will grow back. Um, Yeah, I guess the other thing that, that as archaeologists, that we look at is looking at how knowledge of the heavens, knowledge of the movements of the sun and the stars uh, are important to people, not just perhaps for religious reasons, but also for political reasons, uh, where... being seen to be in control of the movement of the stars, being able to talk about it, having some kind of arcane knowledge of that might be seen as an expression of authority. Um, that if you have the gods on your side, or at least their expression in the stars, then your authority over other people might be seen as being particularly uh, particularly enhanced by that. Right, so it, it then becomes important to, to track the stars and where their positions are yeah. in order to um, yeah, and, keep and, your power. And, and the impression, yeah... And, um, underwriting your power through some reference to the gods if you like and the gods perhaps recognized in the way that the, the sun sets in particular monuments or rises out of of particular sites uh, but we also know from objects that we find that people were acutely aware of and, and very closely attended to um, things like lunar cycles uh, as well as, as as well as the movement of the sun um, i mean there are, we have um, artifacts from as long ago as five six thousand years um, which have on them uh, carvings of or um, other decorations which show eclipses, right? Uh, which show well, lunar cycles for five thousand um, years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's a very different kind of knowledge to the knowledge that astronomers have now, but nonetheless a very sophisticated mm. and complex understanding. Yeah. Well, they started it for us, and Indeed. we've only built on top of what, yes. what they did. Yes, so. absolutely. And you know, there's still plenty that we don't know. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for talking That's to right. us on the Jodcast. Cheers. For one second, the sun breaks loose. It's beautiful. People are going outside, using the telescopes, finally getting what they came for. You can see at the top left of the sun, there's a little bite out of it. It looks a bit like a Pac-Man, but it's still an early stage. Very nice. Hello, sir. Hi. What can you see through the telescope at the moment? Well, we've got a big bite-sized lump taken out of the sun. This is a hydrogen alpha telescope. Uh, so you can see the sort of red sun rather than the, you know, blinding sun. Can I have a quick look? Yes, of course you can. I'll just get it into the middle. Ah, indeed. So we're not seeing the full spectrum of the sun here, it's just one no, narrow band. narrow, the hydrogen alpha band, which is why it looks red, of course, and uh, um, if there are any to be seen, you can see prominences on the limb. Yes. Uh, so... Uh, can we see can, any? I, I've not seen any this morning, no. But you can see the moon beautifully moving before the sun. Oh, yes, yes, that's right, yes. yes. Did you expect it would get sunny after the clouds we saw this morning? Well, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> that's the trouble with Britain, isn't it? I think we're very lucky, aren't we? Well, yes, we've just got a little break at the moment, so let's just hope it keeps like this for a little while. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.
Okay, we're joined by Patricia. You're with the Macclesfield Astronomical Society. Yes, that's right. And you have a solar scope. People have a variety of ways of looking at the sun today. And yes. Can you just tell us what a solar scope is? Well, it's a kind of telescope which enables you to look at the sun safely, and that's the main thing, to look at the sun safely. And you can pay as little as £20, um, or up to, well, hundreds, mm. depending. But this is marvellous for a starter and for families and getting, you know, the kids really fascinated by it. So it looks quite unusual. There's a sort of cardboard box structure and yes. it has a, an orange tube sticking out of yes, the front. Yes, and it's got a, a mirror on this other side. And all you have to do is just tweak it to follow the sun. And then the mirror reflects the sun back onto yes. a screen... Um, yes. Back on the in- inside of this like cardboard an box. Ex, you know, uh, an up-to-date version of the old pinhole. Ah, of course, thing. yes, like a pinhole yes. camera. Yes. And we're actually getting some quite nice images. We still can see a bit of the moon still blocking the sun there. Yeah. And in fact, people with all kinds of um, uh, complicated cameras have been busily photographing this. Taking pictures of <laughs> exactly, inside your pinhole which camera. Which has been quite amusing. You know. It's it's great, and you you've had some sometimes with the clouds drifting across. That looks quite nice as well. Yes, actually. it does. It really is excellent. I'm very impressed. In fact, I shall be getting one of these. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, thank you for talking to us. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you very much. Here in the UK, we can only see a partial eclipse. In parts of Greenland, Russia, Mongolia, and China, people can observe a total solar eclipse. Now, one of those very lucky people is our own Ian Morrison, who is somewhere in China for totality, and we decided to ring him up and find out how things are going. Hi, Ian, it's Tim here. Hello, Tim. We're not disturbed. We've just had first contact, Yeah. and uh, the sun is in the clear, and the clouds do seem to reduce a bit, uh, so crossing it will be okay in an hour's time. That's great. We've got a, we've ours has just finished here now, so uh, we we got we were actually kidding you earlier. We didn't have clear blue skies. It was sort of bits of. Well, I thought you were because my wife had said it was pretty dull in Macclesfield. Ah, <laughs> but anyway, it was a very good ascent. Oh well. Yeah, I mean it was. I mean, the terrible tribulations we've had to get here. You know, it's been far too cold in the air-conditioned coach. We've had to climb up that great wall, which was jolly hard work, and fight our way through the forbidden city. It's been really tough. But I think it's worth it, and all being well, we're going to see it in just under an hour's time. Just under an hour, yeah. We, we've got the um, we've got a webcast uh, live here that seems to be working at the moment, so we can see, you know, that it had just gone past first contact. And there's a nice little prominence. Oh, very good. Yes, there is a prominence. It's a lovely prominence. I think I'm lower left. So are you actually in position now for where you'll be for? Yes, we have been, and uh, I nicked a white sheet from the hotel, and that spread out in front of us, put down by rocks, and that's the hope we might see what are called shadow bands, little ripples on the surface, just before totality. Oh, okay. You'll be taking the sheet back? Uh, I think that's a general idea, yes. <laughs> I think it them five yuan, which is almost nothing to borrow it. We have a lovely view out towards the west, which is where the eclipse shadow is going to come from, and we actually should see it just chasing across the, the valley of this wonderful upland sort of plateau that we're on. And we're up on the middle ridge, so we've got a pretty good view in the direction of the eclipse. That's correct. Or eclipse path, I should say. Okay. Switch later. Hello. I'm Hannah's Blue Eclipse
Oh. You did, yeah. Yes. Right? Okay. Go on, have a look. Wow. Can you tell me what you see? Well, it's got a Vada filter on, so it takes all the light out. It's a white sun with quite a huge chunk out of it. (laughs) It's amazing. Now, although Ian Morrison is in China, before he left, he recorded The Night Sky. The Night Sky in August 2008. Except for the last few days, virtually having never seen the sky in July... I do hope August will be a little bit better. And, of course, the evenings are drawing in a bit now, and uh, so you don't have to wait up quite so late. And uh, the first obvious thing that one will see I'll come to in the highlights very shortly. There's a lovely region of sky that includes Cygnus, Aquila, and Lyra. They have three bright stars. Deneb, the brightest star of Cygnus the Swan, Altair, the brightest star of Aquila the Eagle, and Vega, the brightest star of Lyra. Together they make up what's called the Summer Triangle. And at this moment, Vega is virtually overhead at about 10 o'clock at night. Um, If you look at it with binoculars, you should see, just up to the left, perhaps depending how you're looking, a pair of stars. It's uh, Epsilon um, Lyrae, and is also called the Double Double, because... With binoculars, you actually see that there are two stars there, but with a telescope under good conditions, each of those then is seen to be a double itself. And I had a most wonderful view of that just a couple of days ago, testing a telescope under what were virtually perfect seeing conditions. So that's quite a nice thing to look for. A little bit lower down, between two lower stars in Vega, is what is called the Ring Nebula. And this is what is called a planetary nebula. At the heart is a white dwarf star, the remnant of a star like our sun that exploded and blew off much of its material that forms a sort of a donut, a ring that you see in principle around the white dwarf. And that can be picked up quite easily. However, the white dwarf itself is not at all easy to see. I've only ever seen it once, and that was under perfect conditions using a 16-inch telescope. So it is a nice thing to look at, though, with a, with a small telescope. And as I've said before, if you follow the line from Altair up towards Vega with a pair of binoculars, you'll see a rather nice asterism. It's called Brocky's Cluster or the Coat Hanger because it looks like an upside-down coat hanger. Over to the northwest is, in fact, the constellation of Ursa Major, and that has a lot of lovely objects to see within it. If you care to put night sky into Google and find our Jodrell Bank night sky page, you'll find links to details about all of the objects you can see in these very, very attractive constellations. Well, let's go to the planets. Most of those I'm going to cover in the highlights in just a minute or so, but let me just say something about those that you can't actually see. Um, Mars is now so close to the sun that it's virtually lost in the sun's glare after sunset. I don't really think there's much chance of seeing that. And we're going to have to wait a few months before it could uh, be seen in what is called the pre-dawn sky, just before sunrise. So that's not really a good time for Mars. Uh, Venus, we're going to come back to later. It's actually starting the month really quite close to the sun in angle, 14 degrees. It gradually moves away, but still at rather low elevation. And there is a nice time to look for it, as we'll come to. So that's a couple of the ones that we don't see very well. Let's look at the ones that we can see. 
And if anybody has looked towards the southeast after sunset, you couldn't fail to spot Jupiter. It's pretty well at its best this year, but sadly, because it's at the very lowest part of the ecliptic in the constellation of Sagittarius, its elevation is never more than about 16 degrees. And that means that the atmosphere does affect it. And so the image quality you see with a small telescope will tend not to be good. This will depend upon what is called the seeing. That is the amount of turbulence in the atmosphere. Uh, and the other night, in fact, the seeing was absolutely superb. So I did get some quite view good views of Jupiter with a five-inch telescope. You still see some color. Uh, one limb at the top, let's say, is red. The other is blue. I say let's say because it, depending on the telescope, which way up it looks. Um, and that's because the refraction in the atmosphere sort of splits Jupiter up into different images at different colors, and they're at different elevations. One thing to do to get a clear image is to use, let's say, a green filter, which limits the range of wavelengths that you're observing it with, and you do get a better image, as I, as I observed the other night. So that's one possible thing to do. Uh, it does actually look really very bright, and uh, I think you can hardly fail to spot it. And even binoculars, if you hold them steady, will show the four little moons, the Galilean moons of Jupiter, as they weave their way around it. On the 15th of August, if clear, it would be well worth looking towards the horizon to the west just after the sun has set. Perhaps because it's summertime, it'll be a bit north of west because Venus, which during the month has been gradually moving away from the Sun, will have just passed Saturn and Mercury in the sky. And they're within about two and a half degrees of them. Saturn and Mercury very close together. Saturn slightly higher in the sky than Mercury. And Venus two and a half degrees to the upper left. Because Venus is quite bright, you should be able to pick it out with binoculars, even in the glare of the sun, because it's just after sunset, and that might well enable you to spot Saturn and Mercury. And that will probably be the last chance you have of seeing Saturn until it comes round uh, in a few months' time. So that's one little evening skyscape I think well worth looking at. I've already talked about Jupiter, and that's certainly a highlight of the month, but in fact we have three more highlights. And the first of these is on the very, very first of August. There's a total eclipse of the sun. Now, as sometimes happens, if you have an eclipse of the sun at new moon, the following, or sometimes the preceding, full moon will coincide with an eclipse of the moon. So two weeks later, on well, fact, Saturday, August the 16th, we will in fact have a partial lunar eclipse. It actually happens just after sunset. So as the moon rises at about half past eight in the evening, it will just begin to enter what is called the umbral shadow of the earth. As time goes by, by 22.11, that's British summer time, 80% of the moon will lie within the Earth's full shadow. And that will appear quite dark and hopefully perhaps a deep red colour. The upper part of the Moon, which will only be in the penumbra, the, not the full shadow, will appear quite brilliant in comparison. 
because the moon's elevation is going to be quite low, perhaps 15 to 20 degrees, in fact, the Earth's atmosphere will add to the reddening. So it really could be quite spectacular. And I would say, you know, do have a go and have a look if, hopefully, it might be clear. So the evening of Saturday the 16th, after sunset, through till about 8.30, and 10 to start properly, and then 10, 11, just after 10 o'clock in the evening, you'll get the best effect, gradually, obviously, reducing until about 23.44, 11.44, when it comes out of the Earth's penumbra. How red and how colourful the moon looks depends upon the amount of dust in the Earth's atmosphere. If you've had a volcano recently, and there's a lot of dust in the atmosphere, it can be very, very dull and just a dull grey colour. We haven't really had one, a volcano that is, for a while, so the atmosphere should be pretty clear, and the colour really may be very, very nice indeed. Well, finally, August, between about the 11th and the 13th, gives us a chance to view the Perseid meteor shower. That's one of the most dependable that we have during the year. Now, depending upon the phase of the moon, it can be better or worse to observe. And sadly, as you've just seen, we're at full moon on the 16th, so the moon is waxing. Now, that means it does set uh, before sunrise, and we do tend to see meteors best in the hours after midnight. So probably start looking for it at around the 11th of August, and that's a few days before full moon, and uh, observe them, hopefully, as late as possible in the early morning. And a little chart shows you where to observe, essentially up to the east, looking towards the constellation of Perseids. They're called the Perseids because the radiant of the meteor shower is in the constellation of Perseids. Now, it's not that you should look directly at Perseus, it's much better to look at about 45 degrees away up towards the zenith. That's where you'll see the faintest meteors. And obviously, if you look directly at Perseus, the meteors are coming towards you. You don't see much of a trail. If you look 45 to 60 degrees away from Perseus, then you'll see the arcs across the sky. So let's hope around the 11th, 12th, particularly before the moon gets too prominent, you'll have a chance to see the Perseid meteor shower. So it's really quite a good month. But let me just finish with one other thing. I, I, there have been one or two clear nights in the last week, and I've been out observing. And on three occasions, I have seen the International Space Station. In fact, just a couple of nights ago, it was really at quite high elevation. And I must say, I've been quite amazed how bright it has appeared. Uh, they have added another solar panel array recently, but I've looked on the web and I've seen nothing about the fact that the brightness should have increased significantly. But all I can say is it is really very, very bright. If you go to the website, there's a link that will tell you when you have a chance to see it from your location. And I would say go and have a look because it's by far the brightest object in the sky. It used to be about the same brightness as Venus, I would say, it is at least twice, if not more times, brighter now. So well worth having a look for the International Space Station. Have a good month. Thanks for that, Ian. And staying with Ian, 
We caught up with him again in China just after totality. Hi Ian, it's Tim here. Hello Tim, I'm just moving away from the group. Go ahead. How was it for you? How was it for us? Well, we have moved. No, it was incredible. Um, a cloud came over the sun about four minutes before totality, stayed over the sun until about 45 or 30 seconds before totality, but during the two minutes of totality and more or less since then it's been totally clear. Um, it was really very lovely, a very wide streamer coming out on one side and two smaller streamers coming out the other side and you could make out the shape of the sand magnetic field at the poles, particularly one on one side. Uh, we could see Venus, we could see Mercury and she's just popped behind the cloud after a bit. I may just have seen Saturn but I don't think I saw Mars. You could see which planet's Mercury? Uh, Mercury went behind the cloud, but we saw it first. Then Venus was very, very bright and obvious. I'm pretty certain I saw Saturn, but I don't think I saw Mars. Okay. What's happening now? Uh, well, we're just uh, we're having some celebratory firewater, actually. And that's why I found it rather difficult to speak at the beginning. But I'm washing that down with some Coca-Cola, so I'm a bit better now. Um, people have started moving off. We're going to wait, I think, until... Uh, the end to fourth contact, which is another half an hour or so, okay. and gradually pack up and be on our way home. It'll take us till midnight to get back to Hammy, so I expect we'll sleep on the, the bus. But it was absolutely lovely, very beautiful. Very good, well, it's been a fantastic day. Cheers, Tim, bye bye. Thanks, Tim and Ian. So, we've had a great time here today. Indeed we did. We've seen lots of things, looked through lots of telescopes. We even had some sunny moments. We have, and it's the sun's come back out again now. Now we're at the end of the show. It's amazing. But it was it was great to see the, the moon there um, blocking out part of the sun. Absolutely. So before we wrap up from Jodwell Bank, we should tell you that the long-awaited video Jodcast will be out very soon. And if you go to the website, you'll see a sneak preview trailer for those video Jodcasts. And finally, follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash Jotcast. Or you can join our group on Facebook, or give us a review on iTunes. Or send feedback via the website. And that just leaves us to thank all those people that came to the Partial Eclipse, to thank Philippa Browning and to Mark Edmonds. And in the intro and outro, Nigel Banyard was Avon, Xander Davis was Blake, David Alt was Zen and Orac, Fiona Thrail was Servalan, and the script was by David Alt. So until next time, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Don't you see, Avon? That kind of knowledge and power could set us up above the gods. Together we could remake creation in our image. You know what, Servalan? Somehow, the idea of lots of little me's and you's doesn't seem that appealing. No dice. Avon, you sentimental fool. You don't realize what you're passing up. Trouble is, Servalan, I do. And it doesn't sound very promising. Blake. I knew you wouldn't have fallen for it unless I made it convincing. Emergency teleport now. She got away. Never mind. We still have the Jodcast. And the ability to remake creation in our own image? 
Let's hope not.